Good afternoon, everyone. I'm so glad to see that so many folks have been able to tune in for this webinar on campus bias response teams. My name is Rita Colucci, and I am the general counsel at Salem State University, and I will be the moderator for today's panel. I'd like to introduce and welcome our panelists, Ishan Baba, Erica Turret, and Lauren Hubachek. My introduction is only going to scratch the surface of the many accomplishments of our panelists. So please feel free to check out their complete bios on the speakers tab on the calendar page for the program. Ishan Baba is a partner at Jenner and Block in Washington, DC. He has a wide ranging practice representing institutions of higher education and other entities as well in areas including Title IX, NCAA compliance, consumer and student class actions, government investigations, immigration, and litigation against government directives that limit academic freedom. Erica Turret is a litigation associate, associate at Jenner and Block in Washington, DC. She joined the firm in 2020 and recently completed a pro bono fellowship at National Health Law Program. Ishan and Erica are authors of the 2021 NACUA note entitled Campus Bias Response Teams, Lessons from Litigation and Practical Guidance. And you can find that document on the NACUA website. Last but not least, Lauren Hubachek currently serves as the Director of Strategic Projects and Communication at Bentley University. Prior to joining Bentley almost a year ago, she worked at Salem State as the Interim Dean of Students, where I had the pleasure of working with her. The panel welcomes questions as we go. And just to repeat what Devin mentioned, please feel free to put questions in the Q&A. I will do my best to keep an eye on the Q&A as um, the discussion progresses. Um, and hopefully we can, we can respond to all of your questions as we go. And so without any further ado, I am going to ask the first question of Erica. Erica, can you talk about what a biased response team is and what their role is on campus? Sure. So first, it's great to be here with all of you today and thanks so much for attending. So bias response teams are organizations or entities that are designed to provide resources for campus community members who have been directly impacted by bias incidents. Some campuses give them different names like campus client campus climate teams, excuse me, but overall they're designed to be clearing houses for bias incidents so that all information is coming through to the same campus entity. And these entities can have a holistic view of bias incidents that are going on among their campus. Importantly, bias response teams are distinct from campus disciplinary organizations or entities. They bring together a wide range of university personnel that can include student affairs team members, sometimes discipline or law enforcement members varying from institution to institution, but they don't have the power to punish. Instead, they work voluntarily with both the students affected by a bias incident and will reach out voluntarily sometimes to the student who was allegedly involved with the bias incident. But again, very importantly, the work of the bias response team is typically voluntary. Um, and notably, just last week, the House of Representatives Subcommittee on Education and the Workforce held a hearing called Diversity of Thought, Protecting Free Speech on College Campuses, where one of the speakers who testified at that hearing was the executive director of Speech First, which as we'll talk about for 
further is the main organization that has brought cases to challenge bias response teams. And her testimony at last week's hearing really confirms that this continues to be a really hot button issue across educational institutions. Thank you, Erica. That was really helpful. I'm going to turn the next question over to you, Sean. Can you talk about the legal issues related to bias response teams and how colleges and universities have been challenged? Sure. And let me just echo Erica's comment that we're delighted to be here and also encourage anyone who has questions as this program is proceeding to put them in the Q&A so we can make sure that we're really talking about what it is you find the most interesting. Um, so as Erica previewed speech first, is an organization uh, that has sued now eight public universities claiming that their bias response teams or whatever they call them specifically on campus violate the constitution. Uh, we represented Iowa State in one case and Illinois in another successfully defeating those challenges, but Speech First continues to bring them. And I think the Speech First lawsuits really encapsulate nicely not only the specific claims that go as regards bias response teams, but they are a broader exemplar of the kind of free speech claims public universities, and as we'll talk about in later in the program, even private universities can potentially face, particularly given the political and the heightened environment in which we live. So as a general matter, the speech first claims regarding bias response teams focus on this notion that the bias response team chills protected speech. And what they say is essentially the mechanism or the process through which the bias response team operates, whereby it receives some sort of a complaint or a concern from a student, and then engages in some sort of either investigation or evaluation of that, and also a back and forth dialogue in some cases with the individual alleged to have made the statement. That process as a whole violates the First Amendment rights of the students who want to make controversial speech on campus and are scared they could be reported. Now, in order to understand what these claims are, I think what's really critical is to understand the legal framework that underpins them. And that legal framework has a couple of key parts. First, in a situation which you call a pre-enforcement First Amendment challenge, which is to say a challenge prior to any sanction that has been imposed, what a court looks at to determine whether or not a complaining plaintiff has standing, which in the First Amendment context, standing and merits are usually sort of two sides of the same coin. What a court will look at is whether or not, number one, the plaintiff is engaging in a course of conduct that could credibly lead to the threat of enforcement. So there actually has to be a credible threat of enforcement, not merely that someone is scared of saying something with, frankly, a uh, a very fanciful notion that, that the, the university or some other entity could punish, but it has to be credible. Or number two, there has to be an objectively reasonable chill that the plaintiff is imposing on him or herself, i.e. self-censoring in a reasonable way in light of the legal framework that exists around the speech. And so if one of those two things can be shown, either a credible threat of enforcement or a reasonable chill, and often those two things go very closely together, then you can bring a First Amendment challenge. So that is one key legal principle. The other one is the question of what counts as a punishment or as a restriction in the context of the First Amendment. So obviously, the key point here would be if a student engaging, let's take a classic First Amendment violation, you know, uh, a, a student code says, if you engage in political speech on the Democratic side, you know, you will be suspended from the university. Well, that that's obviously a First Amendment violation. You have number one, protected speech. 
that is to say political speech. Number two, you have a penalty that is being suspended from the university. And number three, just to kind of put the cherry on top, it's even worse because it's viewpoint discriminatory. It is picking one side of a political debate, Democrats, but not Republicans or vice versa. So that would be a classic First Amendment violation. But what the courts have recognized, and there is a good set of case law, including from the Supreme Court, is that entities in the government, including public universities, need not go as far as actually enforcing sanctions if what they do through you know winks nudges something stronger than that is basically suggest that you cannot speak on pain of some sort of an adverse consequence even if in fact the institution doesn't have the authority to impose that consequence or if it's not entirely clear what that consequence will be now even as i've described this it's probably clear that this is a gray area and there aren't exactly black and white lines as to how much something needs to seem like a sanction in order for it to count or not but the key issue in the speech first cases is that there is no institution number one that imposes a penalty as a result of being reported to the bias response team unless the speech that's being reported would otherwise violate some element of the student code. So if I engage in a violent assault while also screaming racial epithets, that would violate the student code quite separate from anything that might be reported to the bias response team. But if you look at the speech, which is solely focused on things that go before the bias response team and do not violate the student code, number one, these bias response teams do not impose penalties. But number two, in almost every case, and I think I should say in every case I'm, I am aware of, a student who has been reported doesn't even need to engage with the bias response team. So if somebody makes an inappropriate joke in class and they are reported to the bias response team and the bias response team reaches out and says, we'd like to talk to you because we received a report. I don't know of a single institution who penalizes a student who says, nope, thank you very much. I don't want to engage. But that's the that's the legal question. And that is oftentimes what the cases turn on, is the extent to which the method of reach out, the extent to which the interaction between the student and the body could be seen as coercive in some way. The, the final thing I will say is that, as I said at the beginning, speech first is interesting because when they bring these claims, number one, they focus on bias response teams, but often they will pair those claims with other attacks on the institution's policies from a speech perspective. So what they will do is they will mine the student code, and I'm sure uh, you know, for those who are um, you know, close to these documents on campuses, you'll know they can often run to hundreds of pages. They will mine this document, go through all of the, you know, in many cases, thousands of provisions, and pick those that either violate the First Amendment, seem excessively vague, or otherwise cause some sort of a First Amendment or speech problem. And they will add those claims on to the allegations made in the complaint. And so what you get is not only an attack on the bias response team, but often attacks on sort of related policies as well. And that leads to a lot of you know, interesting litigation questions about what to defend, what not to defend, and how to proceed. Um, and those are really, I think, what, what, what the key legal issues are. Thank you. Thank you for that summary. So seeing as, you know, so much of this concerns the First Amendment, you know, is this just a problem for our public institutions or do privates have exposure as well? So I think the answer to that is is multi-part. For one, clearly the First Amendment does not apply 
uh, to private institutions, with the exception, which given this is the Boston Bar Association, I don't think is necessarily relevant here. But California has something called the Leonard Law, uh, which actually applies First Amendment-like restrictions on private institutions. But that's not a problem for you in Massachusetts. So generally speaking, the First Amendment does not apply, or it doesn't, period, not even generally, it just doesn't apply. That said, you know, I think from a legal perspective, uh, what has happened in higher education litigation is that constitutional claims do often get brought in the guise of breach of contract actions. And so you see this primarily in the Title IX space, where private institutions uh, will be in Title IX sexual misconduct lawsuits, will have essentially due process claims brought against them, not under you know, the, the, the 14th Amendment, but will instead have due process claims brought under the terms of their student code. So if a student code says something like, you know, we will give you a fair process when evaluating a sexual misconduct claim, students will say, well, you didn't let me interview these witnesses, or you didn't give me these documents, or all the kind of due process claims you would normally bring, except they bring them under the guise of breach of contract. Well, the same thing can happen in speech cases too. So if the student code has broad, expansive language, as many do, uh, regarding free speech, regarding the importance of vigorous debate on campus, the welcoming of multiple perspectives, then if a student believes that some action by a private institution is not living up to those standards, they can bring a breach of contract claim. Now, you know, breach of contract claims against universities, and I'm sure many on this on this webinar may be familiar with this, you know, they fare better or worse depending on the jurisdiction, depending on the subject matter that is being brought. Courts historically have been pretty deferential to universities in breach of contract claims, particularly when it goes to uh, academic freedom, when it goes to institutional decisions that could fall under the guise of educational malpractice. But, you know, there are limits to that doctrine. And so there are ways in which sometimes these claims can be brought. The other thing I'll say is, and you know, I also do First Amendment work with private companies as well. And even institutions or organizations or companies to whom the First Amendment doesn't apply don't want to seem like, you know, Stalinist or dictatorships. And so I think there is oftentimes, and rightly so, some level of sort of self-regulation where you might look at what the First Amendment would allow and compare your own speech policies. Um, and I've been asked by clients to do this in order to make sure that were they to be challenged either in a court or in the court of public opinion or the media, they would stand up relatively well. And, and, and particularly as Congress and state attorney generals, again, not in Massachusetts, but in other states, are becoming more and more interested in higher education institutions as a target for litigation and regulation on these issues. I think making sure that speech policies are in line, generally speaking, with First Amendment standards is a very prudent thing to do. Agreed, agreed, thank you, that was really helpful. I know you mentioned, and you talked a little bit about standing, um, but how about mootness in terms of how really those two, those two concepts, standing and mootness, would affect a lawsuit, any kind of challenge brought by first, um, first speech, or speech first, excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. So speech first as an association in order to gain associational standing, they have to show that at least one of their members would have standing in their own right if they were bringing the lawsuit as an individual. And in order to do this, they, of course, have to show an injury in fact, causation and redressability. And here showing injury in fact has been 
decently difficult for plaintiffs to do, again, for the reasons that Ashan said, because there's no direct punishment involved here by the bias response team. So where the plaintiffs have succeeded in being able to show injury is on this objective chill analysis and whether self-censorship is a reasonable response on behalf of students to the bias response teams. And here's where we've seen the courts of appeals go in different ways. The Seventh Circuit in the University of Illinois case that Ashan mentioned held that there was no evidence in the record that such self-censorship would be a reasonable response to the bias response teams. But the 5th, 6th, and 11th Circuit have gone the other direction, and they have held that primarily because of the ability of bias response teams to refer incidents to law enforcement or disciplinary bodies. Again, these referrals are usually in the same way that anyone on campus could refer the same incident to those bodies, but the courts of appeals have really honed in on that as a source of injury. And very interestingly, in the 11th Circuit, they actually focused on the young age of college students and said or alluded to the fact that it would actually be more reasonable to self-censor as a young person in response to getting an email from a university entity than maybe an older adult would do in the same response, that a younger person would be more likely to find such reach out to be coercive. On mootness, as Ashan explained, in addition to challenging bias response teams, Speech First will also challenge other campus policies like computer policies regarding when you can use campus email to engage in political speech as an example. And we've seen that when Speech First um, comes forward to challenge some of those elements of the student code or other policies, some universities have taken a look and decided that those policies aren't worth defending. Maybe they aren't even enforcing them anymore and they're an old policy still on the books that they haven't been paying much attention to. So then there's a question of whether those claims against the colleges or universities have become moot meaning that there should no longer be a lawsuit over that issue at all because the university isn't abiding by that policy anymore. And for mootness, the key question is the voluntary cessation doctrine, because just because an institution decides to voluntarily stop a policy, that doesn't necessarily mean the court will say, okay, case over. Instead, the court looks at whether the ceased conduct could not reasonably be expected to recur. And that's a high bar because Colleges and universities, like other institutions, could be expected to change their policies. So just because you're getting rid of a policy now doesn't mean that it couldn't come back in the future. For public universities, there's usually some deference that courts will show to government institutions and give them the benefit of the doubt that they're saying in good faith that they're not going to return to the former policy. Um, but even so, we've seen the appellate courts split along similar lines, as I just described, for standing. Mootness wasn't an issue in the 11th Circuit case, but the 5th and 6th Circuits said that the university's attempts to moot those other claims would not be successful because there was no guarantee that the policy could not be expected to recur. Those courts focused a lot on the timing as well 
that the universities were only making changes to those policies in response to the litigation. But the Seventh Circuit in the University of Illinois case did find that the claims were moot because the university should be given the benefit of the doubt that they are telling the court that they are not going to return to the policy. And they also looked that a formal process was used to undo that policy. It wasn't just an official saying they were going to stop it. Instead, they went through a formal effort that would not be as easy as a switch of a button to go back to the old one. That's helpful. Thank you. In, in a little while, we'll be talking about practical tips for um, practitioners out there in terms of advising their clients or if you're in-house, well, again, advising your client um, on how best to manage your policies. Um, so stepping for a minute outside of the legal landscape, I'd like to explore the the boots on the ground challenges for bias response teams. And so I would direct this next question to Lauren, um, drawing on your experience at both public and private institutions. Can you talk about how institutions have used bias response teams um, and the strengths and challenges of having such teams on campus, particularly from the student perspective? I'll turn that over to you. Sure, thank you, and thank you for having me here today. Um, I think from the boots on the ground perspective, our students are seeking support and compassion. And so when they're filing a bias claim through an online process, really they're looking for someone to hear and listen. I think what's important for us to consider as practitioners in the space is that we are ensuring that our students understand the purpose of the team, the value that the team brings, and why the team exists, and how that separates from the other types of activities that occur on our campus, whether it's conduct or different areas. Um, in my work in public institutions, mostly related to this area, a number of students filed bias incident um, claims for a variety of reasons. It could be from someone speaking on campus to graffiti that was present in a space. Um, and essentially they wanted the university to listen. I think as a practitioner in the space, it is vital that you are closely working with your counterpart and general counsel. And Rita was my favorite colleague in first phone call most of the time. Um, and so, coordinating with the both the bias incident response team, but also with your general counsel um, to ensure that you have all the information. Oftentimes practitioners end up being the translation between what can and cannot happen and the student. And I think what is helpful, especially with student affairs colleagues, is oftentimes we have the holistic view of the student. And so we're looking at the perspective of the student, not just in the specific issue or challenge that a student is bringing to us, but we're also supporting them in a number of ways and connect them to the appropriate resources on campus that they can continue to pursue their educational dreams at our institutions. Lauren, let me let me throw another question out at you because you said students are mainly looking for somebody to hear them. And I would agree with that. But do you find that there's a subsection of students who want, who feel they've been wronged and want punishment, right? Want those wrongdoers to not be on campus anymore. Absolutely. There are students who certainly come file a complaint. You outreach to them to meet with you and talk through, through what it is they're seeking. Um, and oftentimes you find, I want this a person who has done this to feels very direct and individual to them. I want this, I want this person gone. I do not want them on campus. I do not want them in my space. And that's where the education really comes in. I think 
Some students are ready to hear that education piece pretty quickly. And some students need a little, a little bit more support and compassion first before they can hear the educational component. From examples we had on our campus, Rita, we had times when students did not want to did not want to engage in the conversation about the legality of it all first, but really wanted the compassionate response. And so student affairs colleagues are often trained in these areas to compassionately respond to the student, make sure they're in a sp safe space to hear this information, and then move forward with the educational piece. But I do believe before we get to a bias incident is that if we can bring students through orientation and other onboarding processes to our institution and share with them what this work is and why it happens and how it happens, we do get to a place where students have a little bit more understanding from the educational perspective rather than the immediate, I need this person gone from campus. Yeah, thank you, thank you, that's helpful. So we are moving very quickly through our program. So I would encourage our listeners to, if you have any questions, please don't be shy. Um, put your questions in the Q&A and we will, we're, at, again, as quickly as we're moving, we're going to have plenty of time for your questions. So again, don't hesitate. So let's move on to some practical guidance. Um, what are some legal best practices, Asham, that um, our lawyers can advise their clients about? Yeah, so I mean, I think in all First Amendment cases, uh, and I alluded to this right at the beginning when I gave the kind of example of a classic First Amendment violation, I think one of the most important things for institutions, both public from a First Amendment perspective and private just from a best practices perspective is consistency. You know, I think oftentimes, obviously, there's a lot going on on college campuses, and these sorts of claims come before bias response team, many of whom are constituted by numerous individuals. Um, and so there might at times be, even though there's a written policy, the actual case itself may get referred to one or another person. Maybe the committee meets, maybe it doesn't. And I think that even though these are not sanctioning bodies, and even though I think these bodies have really uh, tremendously important um, goals, including some of the goals that, that, that Lauren talked about, ways of really fostering difficult conversations on campus for young adults, which is, of course, a huge part of what a university or college education is, is in the first place. I think that where they can get tripped up is if it looks like like cases are not being treated similarly. So if there is a situation in which, uh, you know, a, uh, let's just say, you know, sort of a, a Republican student feels like they were um, the victim of a bias incident as a result of some sort of an action and a democratic student likewise feels that um but the bias response team doesn't re doesn't react similarly and calls in you know the democratic students whoever made the statement to that student but not to the republican student or communicates differently or something like that you know those are the sorts of things that really i think can quickly fall afoul of the law and there is no more prescribed action than viewpoint discrimination in the first amendment and so you need to be very careful about consistency ideology subject matter should really not change uh, the profile of the response by the by the bias response team. So, you know, that I would say consistency is one thing. And then Erica, why don't, why don't we sort of go back and forth? I know we have some other thoughts as well. Yeah, that sounds great. So in addition to consistency, we think formality and transparency are both really important. It's important that the bias response team's procedures for every step of the process are formally documented. And that can actually help with the consistency piece, because if everyone knows what they're supposed to do every time a bias incident comes through, then that can all go much more seamlessly. 
Um, again, although unforeseeable situations can, of course, can arise, it's important that, you know, from the minute an incident gets reported through the entire process, that all of that is documented and standardized. That's particularly important for the external communication. So those emails that are going out to the student, let's say, that you know, was the source of a bias incident. The same exact language, same form email should be used for the Republican student and the Democratic student in Ashan's example. Um, there should also be guidelines to the specific resources that are offered to different students. Again, all of that can help with um, transparency and consistency. We also think the formal procedure should outline the limits of the bias response team's powers. As Lauren said, you know, sometimes students can want more then the bias response team has the power to give. And if that's, you know, transparent and formal and public, that can help set expectations for everyone involved and can also show that the university from the very beginning is, you know, very committed to um, protecting speech and First Amendment expression. Um, and again, because the team's power to refer incidents to disciplinary bodies or law enforcement have played such a big role in the litigation, it's also important that the documented procedures put out there that this referral power is no different than the power that anyone else on campus would have to make referrals. It's not like the bias response team has a super referral ability that then, you know, puts incidents on a priority track for discipline or law enforcement or anything like that. So setting that all out will be really helpful. And in any public materials, you know, on public facing websites, anything like that, that are describing the bias response teams, schools can also think about putting something in there about First Amendment protections as well to make sure that, you know, all of that information that they're communicating to external partners, students, you know, the world is very consistent. Um, that leads us right into another um, thing we think it's important for institutions to think about, and that's language. So because the courts are really parsing the bias response teams, communications to students and things of that nature, and seeing how coercive they are in terms of whether self-censorship is a reasonable response, that's a really fact-intensive inquiry and depends on the very precise language used. So it's important to not use language language that evokes the disciplinary process. For example, you know, when emailing a student that was the source of the bias incident, words like accused or perpetrator, you know, should be avoided because those words are so closely associated with the disciplinary process. Similarly, some of the court decisions have focused on the name bias response team as communicating an idea that because something's reported to the bias response team or the bias response team is looking at something, that means a student's actions have been adjudicated to be biased. And, you know, we know that that's not necessarily the case, that bias response teams aren't, you know, looking at a log of incidents and deciding that one thing is biased and another thing is not, or deeming particular students as committers of bias incidents. So making sure that none of that language evokes that is really important. And another thing schools can do is basically put that out there as well to the public that just because something is being reported to the bias response team doesn't mean that something's being formally determined to be a bias incident. And 
Again, we think it's important that the correspondence and the language used to the students makes it very clear that the student's ability to engage with the bias response team is entirely voluntary because that will help with that um, inquiry that the courts undertake to see if it's coercive, if the language is really clear that the student will face no consequence if they decide not to engage, then that's really helpful. So Ashana, back to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, another area that I think bias response teams can get at times tripped up with, even though it's very justifiable as to why they're designed this way, is the personnel that forms them. What you'll often have is on a bias response team, some member of the campus police force. And that makes sense because particularly if you take another name for bias response team, which is campus climate teams, you know, police oftentimes will have the best idea of what the campus on the climate is. And it will be useful to put certain things into context. I remember in one case I was working on, there was a situation where on a college campus, a number of uh, posters showed up advertising a Ku Klux Klan rally, and those were reported to the bias response team. And the police officer on the team immediately knew that, in fact, no Klan rally was planned, but actually it was just a very inappropriate prank being done by a, a social organization on campus, I think a fraternity or something like that. And so, you know, that's an example where a policeman will have their ear closer to the ground as to exactly what might be happening on campus. The problem is that in defending bias response teams or campus climate uh, teams, you make the argument that these aren't coercive bodies. They don't have any power to sanction. Nobody is going to be penalized as a result of not engaging with them. You know, that argument is somewhat more difficult to make. It still, I think, holds 100%. But atmospherically, it's a little bit more difficult to make when you have the chief of police or members of the police force on the bias response team, because it lets the plaintiffs then say, how could you possibly say that this organization is non-coercive? You have the symbol of coercion on campus, namely the police on this committee. Now, I think it's inevitable, and I think it makes a lot of sense to have the police on this these sorts of committees, but it gets to a second point, which is that in addition to police, oftentimes bias response teams will be housed either formally or you know, sort of dotted line informally within ODR, the Office of Dispute Resolution, or some organization like that, which absolutely does have sanctioning power, whether it's for sexual misconduct or for violations of the student code or for academic integrity issues. And in addition, and I think this is also totally permissible, but it just adds to the complexity, sometimes you'll have people who serve in a coercive function or a sanctioning function in those roles also sit on the bias response team. So you might have the head of student discipline as a member of the bias response team for lots of good reasons. You know, she or he spends a lot of time thinking about the way students interact. They may have a very useful counseling function. They're very well equipped to know what happens on campus and how dynamics are going to play out. But it leads to this situation where if a student gets an email from, you know, Jane Smith, who happens to both be on the bias response team, but is also the head of the Office of Dispute Resolution, then the plaintiffs will say, well, nobody would think this is voluntary. You're having kind of the chief, not police, but law enforcement in the other sense, chief campus disciplinary officer send an email to a student saying, we'd like you to come meet with us about something that you were alleged to have said, you know, what 19-year-old is going to think that that is a voluntary invitation? Um, and so I think these are inevitably somewhat, you know, gray lines that exist. And the way to deal with them is not to make these very relevant, helpful people get off these committees, but instead 
It's just to be crystal clear, and this goes to the point that Erica made, in the language of the communication, when the head of the Office of Dispute Resolution is sending an email to somebody, but in her capacity as a bias response team member, to make very clear that there are no sanctions, there is no requirement to participate, there will be no consequences if you don't participate, uh, and, and to make that even more clear because seeing her name in the inbox might lead a student to think oh i'm in trouble you know i've got to i've got to, i've got i've got to deal with this um so that's that that i think goes to that i'll i'll just make you know one or two sort of other really brief points here about the about the sort of pr pr proactive steps so one of the things that we advise our clients to do and we have done with our clients in some cases when they'd like our views on it is to periodically review the student code i think this is a critical part of hygiene within an institution because student codes uh, often, as we said, are voluminous and they are put together over many years and there are provisions in them that which might have been put together, A, with institutional priorities that no longer exist, or B, may have been put in a hurried way in a response to some incident on campus, but the language wasn't really, the, the tires weren't really kicked and so the language perhaps had some ambiguity in it. It perhaps didn't exactly express what uh, what the intention of the institution was, or frankly, it was put in at a time when universities were just less the subject of litigation than they are now. And you know, if the speech first cases show anything, it is that there are organizations that are well-funded out there that are going through student codes to try and find violating provisions. And I think it is it behooves universities to therefore look at their student codes, not just as some document that nobody ever really looks at, but rather as a potential exhibit A in a future litigation, and just to make sure that everything in the student code, in fact, is something the institution believes in, is something that is being enforced, and is clear. Because it is much cheaper, both from a dollar perspective, but also from a time devotion perspective, to do that work periodically, regularly, upfront, as opposed to being forced to do it in the face of a litigation in a game when you're paying you know, a defense lawyer like us to, to help you do it. So I, I do think that's important. And there are specific, I would say, flashpoints, which you might want to really look at clearly, You know, things like the definitions of bias, harassment, bullying, stuff like that, where you know that there could be speech that could be captured within those terms. Similarly, we've had cases where, you know, pamphleting, leafleting policies, uh, ability to give out political material on campus, places you can and cannot chalk, places you can and cannot put up posters, invite in policies regarding the invitation of outside speakers, all these sorts of things that implicate speech rights, you wanna take a really close look at and just make sure that they actually reflect the priorities of the institution, and they actually are phrased in such a way that it is clear what is being permitted and prescribed, and that lines up with governing law. And that's you know the kind of thing that we do a lot for our clients because people are looking, people are noticing, and lawsuits are being brought on this on this basis. And I guess that just leads to the to the final point um, I'll make in this, which is that you know, and we made this in the in the in the in the note that we published that Rita referenced. These cases go to very sort of lofty First Amendment issues. You read Supreme Court cases, and when we argue them, even either in the district court or in the Court of Appeals, oftentimes we're talking about constitutional law principles. But ultimately, my strong sense, and I think the reason that we prevailed in the cases that we have represented schools in, is that facts matter. You know, the record matters. Courts care about the facts that are presented in the district court and then on the appeal. And why do I say that? I say that because if you can create a factual record through the documents that you collect as part of your normal daily operation,
operations that show that what the complaint alleges is really a complete caricature and an entirely inaccurate one at that of what campus life is like. And that this portrayal of the campus as sort of, you know, Stalinist, Maoist uh, society with no free speech couldn't be further than the truth. It really ruins the credibility of the claim against the institution. But you can't just say that, you have to show it. And you show it by, you know, documentary evidence about the sorts of speakers who have been invited to campus, the kind of organizations that thrive on campus, the way the university's policies for funding work. You know, these are all the nitty gritty details that you have to roll up your sleeves and collect to then respond forcefully. If you just say, well, these are ridiculous claims because we believe in free speech, see, you know, section one of the student code, that's not persuasive. And, and frankly, we have found that when we represent universities in these First Amendment cases, it's really investing the time and resources in creating that kind of a robust record that puts the university in a really strong place to take advantage of what is generally pretty favorable legal standards. Very helpful. Thank you. I, I do want to hear from Lauren in a few minutes about um, best practices from a student affairs perspective, but we did get a question. And so let me. Um, pose the question to our attorneys. Have you seen any lawsuits from, quote, the other direction, plaintiffs complaining that the bias response team has responded insufficiently to the bias incidents, like perhaps with internal line cases? So I, I, can, I, can give a, I can give a couple of comments on those and then, uh, um, and then, Erica, anything you have to add too? So, yeah, obviously, in the Title IX context, universities are very much, you know, in the middle between a rock and a hard place, and basically get in any controversial case get sued, you know, no matter the the outcome. And we do those cases a lot, and I'm very familiar with them. I have not seen a case specifically challenging a bias response team for the, I think, sensible reason that. Generally, the litigation against bias response teams has been brought by Speech First. I think the reason for that is Speech First is well-funded. And for them, these lawsuits certainly are about changing policies. And in some cases, they have been successful in getting victories and forcing universities to change their policies. But I also feel like, as with many outside advocacy groups that do um, you know, affirmative litigation, there are also fundraising mechanisms. And so Speech First files these cases in order to raise money and raise its public profile to file more cases and do, and do the other things that it wants to do. The kind of lawsuit that the question asks is would really be more of an individual one. And I think that you would need a plaintiff who feels that he or she has been harmed and the school hasn't done enough. But I think that as a practical matter, most lawyers would look at that and say, look, there is nothing in the bias response team's policies or procedures and nothing in the student code that says the bias response team is going to do anything more than it did. In fact, the bias response team is designed not to do anything more than it did. And so I think you would be hard pressed to find a lawyer who is willing to invest his or her time. And frankly, it wouldn't be very money well spent by a plaintiff to do that. On the other hand, you know, anything that is likely to harm, unless you have sort of a plaintiff a little bit like Speech First, who's really doing this as much for publicity and as much for kind of a mission-driven approach as it is to solve anyone's individual problems, 
I think most plaintiffs will find that anything that raises to that level is also going to violate the student code. And so there you clearly would have cases and they could be, uh, you know, pretty simple breach of contract cases. I mean, if a student was assaulted, the university did nothing and the assault obviously violates the student code, you have a pretty strong claim against the university for, for, for not following its own rules. But I think that the bias response team is just, you know, something that is just really fits in that kind of sweet spot that it doesn't violate the student code but it is within the purview of the bias response team. I just think practically speaking, you're unlikely to find a plaintiff who's willing to invest money or a lawyer who's willing to invest money in what is likely an unsuccessful case. Thank you. Erica, did you want to add anything or is Sean summed it up pretty yeah, well? No, I think that really covers it. And I think it also goes back a lot to the standing questions too that we've been talking about, that it would be really hard for a student to sufficiently allege harm to meet all the elements of standing and to show that it was the bias response team's lack of further action that harmed them versus harm more tied to the actual disciplinary process, like Ashan said. Thank you. Thank you. So Lauren, can you talk to us from a student affairs perspective about best practices? Um, Sure, happy to. And I think Ashan and Erica shared some of them already, right, in terms of the review of policies and procedures, um, code of conduct, those areas. I think there's a couple of pieces. Bias uh, response teams membership can change or as people leave institutions, join institutions. So I think it is important to have some sort of robust onboarding for the members of that team to truly understand what it is, how it differs from other teams on campus, how it works with its colleagues across the university, not only one to support students, but to address the issues or address the concerns that are coming up. Um, I think so a, a review process of those teams and a review of the membership of those teams and then how onboarding and uh, moving folks off. I think a robust technology that supports these efforts is important to have at institutions so that there is consistency in language and response, that it's time stamped and you know delivery notices, all of that information is very much easily captured through the systems that we have in student affairs that the technology that supports our work. I think the uh, robust nature of uh, supports that we can provide our students. So whether it's a student who's coming forward and sharing um, or filing a bias complaint, how we support that student, what are the resources, also the resources for students who may be, you know, on the receiving end of it. And so how do we support the students in those efforts and ensure that there's equitable uh, resources for students in those areas? And that can include both on campus and internal, but it could include, you know, connecting with external resources. There's, um, and sometimes in these in these situations, more information is shared than what's just related to the bias response. So student affairs practitioners are, are really ready to hear mo most everything a student can share with us and ensure that we're supporting them correctly in the process. I think those are a couple of, of best practices. There's certainly more things to look at. A strong relationship, of course, with your general counsel, a strong relationship with your colleagues to, um, to support the work so that you know it can be tough and challenging to hear these things coming through on our campus community. I think the one thing I'll share is it is vital that we are responsive to our students and reminding them that all voices have an opportunity to be heard in spaces and that true inclusivity is difference of opinions and difference of of beliefs and that's okay and we're in an institution or growing in a place of education to continue that dialogue and continue to see perspectives through different lenses 
Very true. Very true. Well, that wraps up our formal program. Um, if there are any other questions, please put them in the Q&A. We do have a few minutes left. Um, and I know that our panelists would be happy to answer any additional questions. And I do want to thank um, the panelists. I think the information that you've just shared with our viewers has really, really been important and so interesting. Um, and, and clearly you, you are all very high level practitioners in your fields. And so thank you very much. Well, I'm not seeing any other questions come through. So I think our program might be completed. And again, I wanna thank our panelists and also thank our audience for having joined us today. Thank you.